This is Marilyn Lightstone Reads A Room with a View, the timeless Edwardian tale from E.M. Forster, and the sixth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, television and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here is Marilyn to read us E.M. Forster's A Room with a View. Chapter 10. Cecil as a Humorist. The society out of which Cecil proposed to rescue Lucy was perhaps no very splendid affair, yet it was more splendid than her antecedents entitled her to. Her father, a prosperous local solicitor, had built Windy Corner as a speculation at the time the district was opening up, and, falling in love with his own creation, had ended by living there himself. Soon after his marriage, the social atmosphere began to alter. Other houses were built on the brow of that steep southern slope, and others again among the pine trees behind and northward on the chalk barrier of the downs. Most of these houses were larger than Windy Corner and were filled by people who came not from the district but from London and who mistook the honey churches for the remnants of an indigenous aristocracy. He was inclined to be frightened, but his wife accepted the situation without either pride or humility. "'I cannot think what people are doing,' she would say, "'but it is extremely fortunate for the children.' She called everywhere. Her calls were returned with enthusiasm, and by the time people found out that she was not exactly of their milieu, they liked her, and it did not seem to matter.' When Mr. Honeychurch died, he had the satisfaction, which few honest solicitors despise, of leaving his family rooted in the best society obtainable. The best obtainable. Certainly, many of the immigrants were rather dull, and Lucy realized this more vividly since her return from Italy. Hitherto, she had accepted their ideals without questioning— their kindly affluence, their inexplosive religion, their dislike of paper bags, orange peel, and broken bottles. A radical out-and-out, she learned to speak with horror of suburbia. Life, so far as she troubled to conceive it, was a circle of rich, pleasant people, with identical interests and identical foes. In this circle, one thought, married, and died. Outside it were poverty and vulgarity forever trying to enter, just as the London fog tries to enter the pine woods pouring through the gaps in the northern hills. But in Italy, where anyone who chooses may warm himself in equality, as in the sun, this conception of life vanished. Her senses expanded. She felt that there was no one whom she might not get to like that social barriers were immovable, doubtless, but not particularly high. You jump over them, just as you jump into a peasant's olive yard in the Apennines, and he is glad to see you. She returned with new eyes. So did Cecil. But Italy had quickened Cecil not to tolerance, but to irritation. He saw that the local society was narrow, but instead of saying, does that matter very much? He rebelled, and tried to substitute for it the society he called broad. 
He did not realize that Lucy had consecrated her environment by the thousand little civilities that create a tenderness in time, and that though her eyes saw its defects, her heart refused to despise it entirely. Nor did he realize a more important point, that if she was too great for this society, she was too great for all society and had reached the stage where personal intercourse would alone satisfy her. A rebel she was, but not of the kind he understood. A rebel who desired not a wider dwelling room, but equality beside the man she loved. For Italy was offering her the most priceless of all possessions, her own soul. Playing Bumble Puppy with Minnie B, niece to the rector, and age thirteen, an ancient and most honorable game, which consists in striking tennis balls high into the air so that they fall over the net and immoderately bounce. Some hit Mrs. Honeychurch, others are lost. The sentence is confused, but the better illustrates Lucy's state of mind, for she was trying to talk to Mr. B, but at the same time. Oh, it has been such a nuisance. First he, then they. No one knowing what they wanted. And everyone so tiresome. But they really are coming now, said Mr. Beebe. I wrote to Miss Teresa a few days ago. She was wondering how often the butcher called. And my reply of once a month must have impressed her favorably. They are coming. I heard from them this morning. I shall hate those Miss Allens. Mrs. Honeychurch cried. Just because they're old and silly, one's expected to say, How sweet! I hate their ifing and butting and anding. And poor Lucy, oh, serve her right, worn to a shadow. Mr. Beebe watched the shadow springing and shouting over the tennis court. Cecil was absent. One did not play Bumble Puppy when he was there. Well, if they are coming. No, Minnie, not Saturn! Saturn was a tennis ball whose skin was partially unsewn, when in motion his orb was encircled by a ring. If they are coming, Sir Harry will let them move in before the twenty-ninth, and he will cross out the clause about whitewashing the ceilings, because it made them nervous, and put in the fair wear-and-tear one. That doesn't count! I told you! Not Saturn! Saturn's all right for Bumble Puppy, cried Freddy, joining them. Minnie, don't you listen to her! Saturn doesn't bounce. Saturn bounces enough. No, he doesn't. Well, he bounces better than the beautiful white devil. Hush, dear, said Mrs. Honeychurch. But look at Lucy, complaining of Saturn, and all the time's got the beautiful white devil in her hand, ready to plug it in. That's right, Minnie, go for her. Get her over the shins with the racket. Get her over the shins. Lucy fell. The beautiful white devil rolled from her hand. Mr. Beeg picked it up and said, The name of this ball is Vittoria Corombona, please. But his correction passed unheeded. Freddy possessed to a high degree the power of lashing little girls to fury, and in half a minute he had transformed Minnie from a well-mannered child into a howling wilderness. Up in the house, Cecil heard them, and though he was full of entertaining news, he did not come down to impart it, in case he got hurt. Oh, he was not a coward and bore necessary pain as well as any man, but he hated the physical violence of the young. How right it was! Sure enough, it ended in a cry.'
I wish the Miss Allens could see this, observed Mr. Beebe, just as Lucy, who was nursing the injured Minnie, was in turn lifted off her feet by her brother. Who are the Miss Allens? Freddy panted. They have taken Sissy Villa. Well, that wasn't the name. Here his foot slipped, and they all fell most agreeably onto the grass. An interval elapses. What's what name? asked Lucy, with her brother's head in her lap. Well, Alan wasn't the name of the people Sir Harry's let to. Oh, nonsense, Freddy. You know nothing about it. Nonsense yourself. I've this minute seen him. He said to me, Ahem, Honeychurch. Freddy was an indifferent mimic. Ahem, ahem. I have at last procured really desirable tenants. I said, Array, old boy, and slapped him on the back. Exactly. The Miss Allens. Rather not. More like Anderson. Oh, good gracious. There isn't going to be another muddle, Mrs. Honeychurch exclaimed. Do you notice, Lucy? I'm always right. I said, don't interfere with Sissy Villa. I'm always right. <sighs> I'm quite uneasy at being always right so often. It's only another muddle of Freddy's. Freddy doesn't even know the name of the people. He pretends to have taken it instead. Yes, I do. I've got it. I've got it. Emerson. What name? Emerson. I'll bet you anything you like. What a weathercock Sir Harry is, said Lucy quietly. I wish I had never bothered over it at all. Then she lay on her back and gazed at the cloudless sky. Mr. Beebe, whose opinion of her rose daily, whispered to his niece that that was the proper way to behave if any little thing went wrong. Meanwhile, the name of the new tenants had diverted Mrs. Honeychurch from the contemplation of her own abilities. Emerson, Freddy? Do you know what Emersons they are? I don't know whether there are any Emersons, retorted Freddy, who was democratic. Like his sister, and like most young people, he was naturally attracted by the idea of equality, and the undeniable fact that there are different kinds of Emersons annoyed him beyond measure. I trust they are the right sort of person. All right, Lucy. She was sitting up again. I see you looking down your nose and thinking your mother's a snob. But there is a right sort and a wrong sort, and it's affectation to pretend there isn't. Emerson's a common enough name, Lucy remarked. She was gazing sideways. Seated on a promontory herself, she could see the pine-clad promontories descending one beyond another into the weald. The further one descended the garden, the more glorious was this lateral view. I was really going to remark, Freddy, that I trusted they were no relations of Emerson the philosopher, a most trying man. Pray, does that satisfy you? Oh, yes, he grumbled. And you will be satisfied, too, for they're friends of Cecil. So, elaborate irony, you and the other country families will be able to call in perfect safety. Cecil? exclaimed Lucy. Don't be rude, dear, said his mother placidly. Lucy, don't screech. It's a new bad habit you're getting into. But, but as Cecil, friends of Cecil's, he repeated, and so really desirable. Ahem, Honeychurch, I have just telegraphed to them. She got up from the grass. It was hard on Lucy. Mr. Beebe sympathized with her very much. 
While she believed that her snub about the Miss Allens came from Sir Harry Otway, she had borne it like a good girl. She might well screech when she heard that it came partly from her lover. Mr. Vyse was a tease, something worse than a tease. He took a malicious pleasure in thwarting people. The clergyman, knowing this, looked at Miss Honeychurch with more than his usual kindness. When she exclaimed, But Cecil's Emersons, they, they can't possibly be the same one. There is that. He did not consider that the exclamation was strange, but saw in it an opportunity of diverting the conversation while she recovered her composure. He diverted it as follows. The Emersons who were at Florence, do you mean? No, I, I don't suppose it will prove to be them. It's probably a long cry from them to friends of Mr. Vice's. Oh, Mrs. Honeychurch, the oddest people, the queerest people. For, for our part, we liked them, didn't we? He appealed to Lucy. There was a great scene over some violets. They picked violets and filled all the vases in the room of these very Miss Allens who have failed to come to Sissy Villa. <laughs> Poor little ladies, so shocked and so pleased. It used to be one of Miss Catherine's great stories. My dear sister loves flowers, it began. They found the whole room a mass of blue, vases and jugs, and the story ends with so ungentlemanly and yet so beautiful. Oh, my, it is all very difficult. Yes, I always connect those Florentine Emersons with the violets. Fiasco's done you this time, remarked Freddy, not seeing that his sister's face was very red. She could not recover herself. Mr. Beebe saw it, and continued to divert the conversation. These particular Emersons consisted of a father and a son, the son a, a goodly, if not a good, young man. Not a fool, I fancy, but, but very, very mature. Pessimism, etc. Our special joy was the father. Such a sentimental darling. And people declared he had murdered his wife. In his normal state, Mr. B would never have repeated such gossip, but he was trying to shelter Lucy in her little trouble. He repeated any rubbish that came into his head. Murdered his wife? said Mrs. Honeychurch. Lucy, don't desert us. Go on playing Bumble Puppy. Really, the Pension Bertolini must have been the oddest place. That's the second murderer I've heard of as being there. Whatever was Charlotte doing to stop? Oh, by the by, we really must ask Charlotte here sometime. Mr. Beebe could recall no second murderer. He suggested that his hostess was mistaken. At the hint of opposition, she warmed. She was perfectly sure that there had been a second tourist of whom the same story had been told. The name escaped her. What was the name? Ah, oh, what was the name? She clasped her knees for the name. Something in Thackeray. She struck her matronly forehead. Lucy asked her brother whether Cecil was in. Oh, don't go, he cried, and tried to catch her by the ankles. I must go, she said gravely. Don't be silly. You always overdo it when you play. As she left them, her mother shouted up, Harris! Shivered the tranquil air and reminded her that she had told a lie and had never put it right. Such a senseless lie, too, yet 
It shattered her nerves and made her connect these Emersons, friends of Cecil's, with a pair of nondescript tourists. Hitherto truth had come to her naturally. She saw that for the future she must be more vigilant and be absolutely truthful. Well, at all events, she must not tell lies. She hurried up the garden, still flushed with shame. A word from Cecil would soothe her. She was sure. Cecil? Hello, he called, and leant out of the smoking-room window. He seemed in high spirits. I was hoping you'd come. I heard you all bear gardening, but there's better fun up here. I... Even I have won a great victory for the comic muse. George Meredith's right. The cause of comedy and the cause of truth are really the same. And I, even I, have found tenants for the distressful Sissy Villa. Oh, don't be angry. Don't be angry. You'll forgive me when you hear it all. He looked very attractive when his face was bright, and he dispelled her ridiculous forebodings at once. I have heard... "'she said. "'Freddy has told us. "'Naughty Cecil. "'I suppose I must forgive you. "'Just think of all the trouble I took for nothing. "'Certainly the Miss Allens are a little tiresome, "'and I'd rather have nice friends of yours. "'But you oughtn't to tease one so. "'Friends of mine?' he laughed. "'But, Lucy, the whole joke is to come. "'Come here.' "'But she remained standing where she was. "'Do you know where I met these desirable tenants?' "'in the National Gallery when I was up to see my mother last week. "'What an odd place to meet people,' she said nervously. "'I don't quite understand. "'In the Umbrian room, absolute strangers. "'They were admiring Luca Signorelli, of course, quite stupidly. "'However, we got talking, and they refreshed me, well, not a little. "'They had been to Italy. "'But Cecil,' proceeded hilariously, in the course of conversation, they said that they wanted a country cottage, the father to live there, the son to run down for weekends. I thought, what a chance of scoring off Sir Harry, and I took their address on a London reference, found they weren't actual blackguards. <laughs> it was great sport, and wrote to him, making a... Cecil, no, it's not fair. I've probably met them before. He bore her down. Perfectly fair. "'Anything is fair that punishes a snob. "'That old man will do the neighbourhood a world of good. "'Sir Harry is too disgusting with his decayed gentlewomen. "'I meant to read him a lesson sometime. "'No, Lucy, the classes ought to mix, "'and before long you'll agree with me. "'There ought to be intermarriage, all sorts of things. "'I believe in democracy. "'No, you don't,' she snapped. "'You don't know what the word means.' "'He stared at her and felt again that she had failed to be Leonardesque. No, you don't. Her face was inartistic, that of a peevish virago. It isn't fair, Cecil. I blame you. I blame you very much indeed. You had no business to undo my work about the Miss Allens and make me look ridiculous. You call it scoring off Sir Harry, but do you realize that it is all at my expense? I consider it most disloyal of you. She left him. Temper, he thought, raising his eyebrows. No, it was worse than temper, snobbishness. As long as Lucy thought that his own smart friends were supplanting the Miss Allens, she had not minded. He perceived that these new tenants might be of value educationally. 
He would tolerate the father and draw out the son, who was silent. In the interest of the comic muse and of truth, he would bring them to Windy Corner. Chapter 11 In Mrs. Vise's Well-Appointed Flat the comic muse, though able to look after her own interests, did not disdain the assistance of Mr. Vyse. His idea of bringing the Emersons to Windy Corner struck her as decidedly good, and she carried through the negotiations without a hitch. Sir Harry Otway signed the agreement, met Mr. Emerson, who was duly disillusioned. The Miss Allens were duly offended— and wrote a dignified letter to Lucy, whom they held responsible for the failure. Mr. Beebe planned pleasant moments for the newcomers, and told Mrs. Honeychurch that Freddy must call on them as soon as they arrived. Indeed, so ample was the muse's equipment that she permitted Mr. Harris, never a very robust criminal, to droop his head, to be forgotten, and to die. Lucy, to descend from bright heaven to earth, whereon there are shadows because there are hills, Lucy was at first plunged into despair, but settled after a little thought that it did not matter the very least. Now that she was engaged, the Emersons would scarcely insult her and were welcome into the neighborhood, and Cecil was welcome to bring whom he would into the neighborhood. Therefore, Cecil was welcome to bring the Emersons into the neighborhood— but as I say, this took a little thinking, and, so illogical are girls, the event remained rather greater and rather more dreadful than it should have done. She was glad that a visit to Mrs. Vyse now fell due. The tenants moved into Sissy Villa while she was safe in the London flat. "'Cecil, Cecil, darling,' she whispered the evening she arrived, and crept into his arms. Cecil, too, became demonstrative. He saw that the needful fire had been kindled in Lucy. At last she longed for attention, as a woman should, and looked up to him because he was a man. "'So you do love me, little thing,' he murmured. "'Oh, Cecil, I do. I do. I don't know what I should do without you.' Several days passed. Then she had a letter from Miss Bartlett. A coolness had sprung up between the two cousins, and they had not corresponded since they parted in August. The coolness dated from what Charlotte would call the flight to Rome, and in Rome it had increased amazingly. For the companion who is merely uncongenial in the medieval world becomes exasperating in the classical. Charlotte, unselfish in the forum, would have tried a sweeter temper than Lucy's, and once in the baths of Caracalla, they had doubted whether they could continue their tour. Lucy had said she would join the Vises. Mrs. Vise was an acquaintance of her mother, so there was no impropriety in the plan, and Miss Bartlett had replied that she was quite used to being abandoned suddenly. Finally, nothing happened, but the coolness remained, and for Lucy was even increased when she opened the letter and read as follows— it had been forwarded from Windy Corner. Tunbridge Wells, September. Dearest Lucia, I have news of you at last. 
Miss Lavish has been bicycling in your parts, but was not sure whether a call would be welcome. Puncturing her tyre near Summer Street, and it being mended while she sat very woebegone in that pretty churchyard, she saw to her astonishment a door open opposite, and the younger Emerson man come out. He said his father had just taken the house. He said he did not know that you lived in the neighbourhood. Question mark. He never suggested giving Eleanor a cup of tea. Dear Lucy, I am much worried, and I advise you to make a clean breast of his past behaviour to your mother. And I advise you to make a clean breast of his past behaviour to your mother, Freddy, and Mr. Vise, who will forbid him to enter the house, etc. That was a great misfortune, and I dare say you have told them already. Mr. Vise is so sensitive. I remember how I used to get on his nerves at Rome. I am, I am very sorry about it all, and should not feel easy unless I warned you. Believe me, your anxious and loving cousin, Charlotte. Lucy was much annoyed, and replied as follows. Beauchamp Mansion, Southwest. Dear Charlotte, "'Many thanks for your warning. "'When Mr. Emerson forgot himself on the mountain, "'you made me promise not to tell Mother, "'because you said she would blame you "'for not being always with me. "'I have kept that promise "'and cannot possibly tell her now. "'I have said both to her and Cecil "'that I met the Emersons at Florence "'and that they are respectable people, "'which I do think, "'and the reason that he offered Miss Lavish no tea "'was probably that he had none himself.' She should have tried at the rectory. I cannot begin making fuss at this stage. You must see that it would be too absurd. If the Emersons heard I had complained of them, they would think themselves of importance, which is exactly what they are not. I like the old father, and look forward to seeing him again. As for the son, I am sorry for him when we meet, rather than for myself. They are known to Cecil, who is very well, and spoke of you the other day. We expect to be married in January. Miss Lavish cannot have told you much about me, for I am not at Windy Corner at all, but here. Please do not put private outside your envelope again. No one opens my letters. Yours affectionately, L. M. Honeychurch. Secrecy had this disadvantage. We lose the sense of proportion. We cannot tell whether our secret is important or not. Were Lucy and her cousin closeted with a great thing which would destroy Cecil's life if he discovered it, or with a little thing which he would laugh at? Miss Bartlett suggested the former. Well, perhaps she was right. It had become a great thing now. Left to herself, Lucy would have told her mother and her lover ingenuously, and it would have remained a little thing. Emerson, not Harris. It was only that a few weeks ago. She tried to tell Cecil even now when they were laughing about some beautiful lady who had smitten his heart at school. But her body behaved so ridiculously that she stopped. She and her secret stayed ten days longer in the deserted metropolis, visiting the scenes they were to know so well later on. It did her no harm, Cecil thought, to learn the framework of society, while society itself was absent on the golf links or the moors. The weather was cool, and it did her no harm. In spite of the season, Mrs. Vyse managed to scrape together a dinner party, consisting entirely of the grandchildren of famous people. 
The food was poor, but the talk had a witty weariness that impressed the girl. One was tired of everything, it seemed. One launched into enthusiasms only to collapse gracefully and pick oneself up amid sympathetic laughter. In this atmosphere, the Pension Bertolini and Windy Corner appeared equally crude, and Lucy saw that her London career would estrange her a little from all that she had loved in the past. The grandchildren asked her to play the piano. She played Schumann. Now, some Beethoven, called Cecil, when the querulous beauty of the music had died. She shook her head and played Schumann again. The melody rose, unprofitably magical. It broke. It was resumed, broken, not marching once from the cradle to the grave. The sadness of the incomplete... The sadness that is often life, but should never be art, throbbed in its disjected phrases and made the nerves of the audience throb. Not thus that she played on the little draped piano at the Bertolini, and too much Schumann was not the remark that Mr. Beebe had passed to himself when she returned. When the guests were gone and Lucy had gone to bed, Mrs. Vyse paced up and down the drawing-room, discussing her little party with her son. Mrs. Vyse was a nice woman, but her personality, like many another's, had been swamped by London, for it needs a strong head to live among many people. The too vast orb of her fate had crushed her, and she had seen too many seasons, too many cities, too many men for her abilities, and even with Cecil she was mechanical, and behaved as if he was not one son, but, so to speak, a filial crowd." "'Make Lucy one of us,' she said, looking round intelligently at the end of each sentence and straining her lips apart until she spoke again. "'Lucy is becoming wonderful. Wonderful!' "'Her music always was wonderful.' "'Yes, but she is purging off the honeychurch taint. Most excellent honeychurches, but you know what I mean. She is not always quoting servants or asking one how the pudding is made.' <laughs> Italy has done it. Oh, perhaps, she murmured, thinking of the museum that represented Italy to her. It is just possible. Cecil, mind you marry her next January. She is one of us already. But her music, he exclaimed, the style of her, how she kept to Schumann when, <laughs> like an idiot, I wanted Beethoven. Schumann was right for this evening. Schumann was the thing. "'Do you know, Mother, I shall have our children educated just like Lucy. "'Bring them up amongst honest country folks for freshness. "'Send them to Italy for subtlety. "'And then, not till then, let them come to London. "'I don't believe in these London educations.' "'He broke off, remembering that he had had one himself, "'and concluded, at all events, not for women. "'Make her one of us,' repeated Mrs. Vyse and processed to bed. As she was dozing off, a cry, the cry of nightmare, rang from Lucy's room. Lucy could ring for the maid if she liked, but Mrs. Vyse thought it kind to go herself. She found the girl sitting upright, with her hand on her cheek. I, I am so sorry, Mrs. Vyse. It is these dreams. Bad dreams? Just dreams. The elder lady smiled and kissed her saying very distinctly, "'You should have heard us talking about you, dear.' 
He admires you more than ever. Dream of that. Lucy returned the kiss, still covering one cheek with her hand. Mrs. Vyse recessed to bed. Cecil, whom the cry had not awoke, snored. Darkness enveloped the flat. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, A Room with a View. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the sixth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn Reed, Pride and Prejudice, The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.